Listener Production. Hello, welcome to The Briefing. You've made it to the end of the week. It is Friday, May the 6th. I'm Katrina Blowers. And in today's briefing, Roe v. Wade and the abortion war in the United States. You're really creating a system where there are two very different systems within the country, two very different approaches to not just business or culture, but, you know, an actual woman's body in the issue of abortion. So where did all this begin? Why now? And what could it mean, not just for abortion law, but potentially gay marriage too? That is today's briefing topic. But first, Annika Smethurst is here with the headlines. Labor leader Anthony Albanese is downplaying a stumble, this time over his NDIS policy, calling it gotcha journalism. The point here, David, isn't some bureaucratic gotcha game. The point here is putting people back in charge of the NDIS. That was Anthony Albanese on Q&A there. Now, this comes after he wasn't able to list his six-point plan for the National Disability Insurance Scheme when asked by the media in Sydney on Thursday. Are these the six points here that have to be handed to you by your advisor? Mr Albanese, that's not right. We just saw you. You just don't hand it for six points, Mr Albanese. What are they? Yeah, so Albanese has denied he made a mistake. It comes after his struggle to name key economic figures, including the unemployment rate in the first week of the campaign. Uh, Annika, I, I know we've discussed this before about whether this sort of thing has cut through, but it feels to me now that this is becoming a bit of a pattern Is it or is it just my perception? Look, I think that's the biggest problem for him. I don't know if not knowing, you know, six points of a plan. He's obviously come up with a plan, approved it, sat in shadow cabinet. He's agreed to it. You know, not having it at front of mind, I don't think is a hanging offence. The economic figures, he really should have known them. But what it is, it, it becomes a perception. It's it's the same thing Labor are trying to do with the Prime Minister, saying he's loose with the truth. He doesn't show up when there's a natural disaster. It's the same thing. They're trying to create this narrative. And it seems to be working because he has had a number of slip-ups. And I do think if Labor win this election, it is a classic example that what we always say in politics, governments lose elections opposition's don't win them because he hasn't had a particularly good campaign but he still might win anyway. Australia is being warned Chinese security personnel could soon outnumber Australian peacekeepers in the Solomon Islands. The opposition leader in the Solomon Islands has told News Corp that Prime Minister Manasseh Sogavare is likely to install a strongman force to cement his hold on power. Yeah, so the opposition leader, whose name is Peter Kenilorea Jr., has also said that Sogavare is setting the scene for a rapid deployment of Chinese boots on the ground after making this extraordinary statement about Australia. We are threatened with invasion. What is more insulting, Mr Speaker, in this attitude and therefore totally unacceptable is we are being treated as kindergarten students. We are insulted. Prime Minister Scott Morrison responded with this on Nine. No, we'll continue to work constructively with the Solomon Islands government as we, as we always have. This all comes after Prime Minister Scott Morrison called the Solomon Islands our backyard. Now, the issue was red hot when Defence Minister Peter Dutton and Labor's defence spokesman Brendan O'Connor faced off in a pre-election debate at the National Press Club yesterday. 
Labor has criticised the coalition for its failure to intervene in the signing of the agreement and believes Morrison's warning that a Chinese base in the Solomon Islands would be a red line for Australia has done nothing but inflame tensions. He doesn't get soft power diplomacy. He doesn't understand statecraft. He doesn't understand the region. And that's why we're in this predicament. Labor's defence spokesman Brendan O'Connor there. The World Health Organization has crunched the numbers and they've actually revised up the pandemic death toll, almost tripling the previous estimate. If we don't track, we risk underestimating, which can result in underinvestments in health. That's the Assistant Director General of the World Health Organization, Samira Hasma there. The World Health Organization believes many countries undercounted the number of deaths and now estimates 15 million people died around the world, up from the official count of 5.4 million. Yeah, which is a, a huge increase in numbers. So the way that they've calculated all of this is by measuring how many more people died than would normally be expected to, which is, they've based that on mortality in the same areas before the pandemic hit. And the WHO believes that most of the extra 9.5 million deaths resulted directly from COVID, but that number also takes into account deaths which are caused by knock-on effects. So, you know, not being able to get adequate health care into time or the hospital systems being too crowded to cope, that kind of thing. According to the latest federal health data in Australia, the pandemic has claimed more than 6,700 lives here and more than 4,500 of those actually have occurred this year and it's only May. So still really continuing to have a dramatic effect across Australia. This is such a heartbreaking story. A three-year-old girl who was left on a childcare bus in central Queensland for up to six hours remains in intensive care, but she is said to now be breathing on her own. Nevaeh Austin was left on a bus that's used for pickups and drop-offs from 9am in the morning to when staff found her about 3pm in the afternoon. It was a hot day and they had to revive her on the floor of the childcare centre. Yeah, so her family is now demanding answers. They say she was the only one on the bus and they do not understand how she could have been left on board. Numb, mortified, hysterical. How does this happen? Why? Why, does this ha- Why did it happen? There's no answer. We've been given no answers. That was the little girl's grandmother, Pamela Parker, speaking there. Now, it's the second time this has happened in three years. In February 2020, a three-year-old boy was found dead inside a bus outside a childcare centre in Cairns. A police investigation into this latest incident is now underway. And Ukraine is continuing to push for more financing after last month saw at least $84 billion worth of damage due to the war. An international donors conference in Warsaw has raised $9 billion, which is a substantial sum considering the total amount Ukraine has received so far is $17 billion in weapons and financial aid. That conference was hosted by Poland and Sweden, with a number of European countries donating. A global crowdfunding platform has also been launched to help Ukraine win the war with Russia. Only together we have the potential to stop the war that Russia has started and to rebuild what Russia has destroyed. Together we can help freedom defeat tyranny. 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky there with a pretty uh, modern idea, Annika. This crowdfunding platform is called United24. All funds would be transferred to the National Bank of Ukraine. Zelensky's promising his government will give an update every 24 hours about how this money is being used. If you're interested, you want to check it out, you want more info, we will put that link over on the briefing's Instagram page so you can find it there. All right, so if you've been seeing the news everywhere about the potential changes to Roe v. Wade and what that could mean for abortion law in the US, we are doing a deep dive on that topic straight after this. In the US, the leak of a draft court ruling has led to nationwide protests with the Supreme Court preparing to overturn Roe v. Wade. That's a historic ruling which gives women a federal constitutional right to an abortion. While only in draft form, the opinion would be the most consequential abortion decision in decades. And if it's not substantially altered, it could return abortion rights to the states. As it stands, 26 states are poised to ban or greatly restrict abortion as soon as practicable, and that could be enforced almost immediately if this goes through. So what does the future hold for Roe v Wade? Joining us on the briefing is New York Times correspondent Damien Cave. Damien, thanks for joining us. Why is this decision being made now? Isn't this been something that's been setting stone for decades now? Yes, it has been in place since 1973, the federal protection of abortion. And why it's happening now, you know, it's a tough question, but it's something that I guess has been building for decades. You know, conservative legal scholars have been pushing for an end to Roe v. Wade, the case that protected abortion for a very long time. And what's happened now is that after a series of appointments from former President Trump, the Supreme Court is simply more conservative than it used to be. And so there was always an expectation that they would take on this case uh, and perhaps, you know, knock it down. But this seems to be a much more radical kind of removal of that protection than even anyone expected. The leaked opinion was written by Justice Samuel Alito. Now, when was he appointed and what do we know about him? Was it made clear that this is something he wanted to tackle? Yes. I mean, he is one of the justices that is, you know, widely seen as very conservative and has long made clear that this was a major issue or something that he was likely to tackle. Now, when all these judges, there's three of them that were appointed who are generally very conservative, including Alito, were asked at their confirmation hearings how they would handle this case of Roe v. Wade because it is so controversial. None of them really gave a clear answer. And, and there was a suggestion that they would not go this far. And those who were trying to confirm them said, oh, they're not going to tackle this. This is established legal precedent. If they do anything, it would be around the edges. But, you know, quietly behind the scenes, conservatives have hoped that the Supreme Court would do exactly what Alito is doing now. And, and to some, I think there's an argument that they're doing exactly what they were put in place to do. And so it would be a surprise if they did not try to tear it down with as much kind of vigor as Alito is doing now. Seems to me quite unusual that this opinion <laughs> would even leak in the first place. What do we know about how this leaked and why? You know, it's extremely rare that this happens. I mean, no one I've seen in any in any of the press coverage that I've read is even clear the last time an opinion like this did leak. I mean, you have to go really far back into Supreme Court history to find something like that. And, you know, who did it is a totally an open question. Nobody knows. It's an extreme breach of the usual norms. 
But you have to think about, okay, well, which side would benefit most? And so some of the speculation is suggesting that those on the right, those who perhaps feared that the the decision might not actually go this way, that if you have five of the justices who are on board for tearing down Roe v. Wade, what if one or two were trying to say, oh, you know what, this goes too far? The decision is actually not supposed to be released until June. The general speculation seems to be that someone on the right Someone on the side who really wanted this to be torn down, you know, leaked it as a way to put pressure on some of the justices to stay together to make sure that that decision goes exactly along the lines of this draft or something very similar. But, you know, it's really impossible to know. It's also quite possible that there are some clerk or someone within the Supreme Court system who felt like this was such a violation of precedent and rights and someone from the perspective of the left who also could release it. So we we don't really know, but it is a very big deal. If it is only in the draft stage, will it have support? Drafts often are rewritten and rearranged. They take in dissents or different arguments from the justices who support that opinion. But it's not likely that the actual decision would change. It's just a question of the scope of the decision and the language of the case that would create precedence for other things going forward. So I don't think anyone is fully expecting this draft to somehow be completely removed and not at all where the decision goes. It's more a question of kind of, well, how is the decision framed? How extreme is the language? What are the precedents that are set up? So everyone is expecting some kind of change when the decision is actually fully handed down in June. But it's still expected that this will be the end of Roe versus Wade when that decision does come down. Damien, if it's not altered, it's believed up to 26 states are poised to ban abortion or restrict it pretty soon. Which states will be the first to act? And is it as simple as a red v. blue Republican v. Democrat debate? It is generally a red versus blue state issue. I mean, this case comes from Mississippi, the deep parts of the South where the conservative legislatures and conservatism is stronger is where you already have very strict abortion rules and where it will likely be banned. I mean, it creates all kinds of complications for businesses, you know, Amazon, Apple, some of these big companies have already, as they've seen abortion rights be cut curtailed in these states, created systems where they agree to pay for their employees to go to states where they could have an abortion or have other kinds of medical care that they need. So it's just another example of American polarization at the extreme. You're really creating a system where there are two very different systems within the country, two very different approaches to not just business or culture, but, you know, an actual woman's body in the issue of abortion. So this is just another example of American division, and it's just going to get worse, unfortunately. Why is this such a huge issue in the US? I've read opinion polls that say that around 30% of Americans want the Supreme Court to completely overturn the Roe versus Wade decision. So why is it that this keeps on coming up in the US? It's a question that I don't think I have an answer for. I'm not sure anyone does. I mean, it's something that's been playing out for decades. Many conservative political players have used abortion to drive people to the polls to get them to vote. And so it's just an issue that's kind of been around in the political world for a very long time. And so I think that stirs people up. But even the numbers you just cited suggest that, you know, Americans, the majority of Americans are actually okay with having the option of abortion, with that being a choice. And so, you know, this is something that is seen by many as anti-democratic for the court to do this. That's obviously not what they think. They believe that the case by making abortion legal actually took away the rights of those who opposed abortion. So, you know, I think it does speak to the way that Americans think of rights and just the extreme kind of conflict that American history reflects, you know, from revolution to civil rights to, you know, Donald Trump to abortion. Americans are, you know, an argumentative bunch, so to speak. And it's it's much more than that. And I keep thinking about the idea of restraint 
democracies work best when there is restraint and tolerance. And unfortunately, the United States has been shifting away from both of those things for a while now. If most Americans support the right to abortion, what can Congress do here to intervene if it does go the way of this draft ruling? Well, a key point of the draft, right, is that in this in the system, the legislature is the one that should have dealt with this. The courts never should have been ruling on abortion. And, and there is a logic to that. And so President Biden has already said, well, we need to find a way to protect abortion nationwide. But the likelihood of that happening is extremely slim. He doesn't have the votes in the Senate to do it. But it is possible that at some point this will be something that will have to be protected by Congress if that's what the majority of Americans want, if that's what the majority of elected officials want and agree to do. So this doesn't mean that, you know, abortion will become criminal and illegal everywhere in the country forever. You know, it means that this is another chapter in this long saga and that now those divisions will play out until Congress decides to create some kind of national law that handles this. What about the tricky situation this puts Joe Biden in? I mean, it is sort of a conflict for him, isn't it? Because he has Christian beliefs. Uh, How damaging could this be for him? It throws intense emotional politics into the debate at a time when we're heading towards midterm elections in the United States in November. And it's really hard to tell what it means for Biden or the Democrats. On one hand, you know, it's just stirred up so much frustration and anger. And and I think a real realization that the conservatives are, are not done trying to change the country and that they're willing to go to pretty far extremes to do so. So on one hand, it could bring more Democrats out of the polls. It can also bring out more Republicans to the polls. And so it just, I think, if anything, it just, again, kind of intensifies the political conflicts that are already there. But it's really hard to see what it means for Biden and what it means for the Democrats. This is really about states' rights, I guess, uh, trumping, you know, a a federal court decision. So is there any other issues that could come up? Uh, Joe Biden sort of spoke about um, same-sex marriage. What other laws could be in the firing line? Well, what's challenging about this draft is that it basically says that if it's a right that's not enumerated in the Constitution, if it's not explicitly stated, then it's possible that all those rights from same-sex marriage to anything that involves so-called privacy protections could be legislated at the state level. So a state could say, you know what? no same-sex marriage. They could say, you know, theoretically, no sex if you're not married. I mean, the, the possibilities here are kind of endless if you assign all the rights or the ability to legislate around things that involve privacy. And so it does potentially have huge consequences. In the draft, Alito does try to say this is only about abortion. Abortion is a very particular case because it involves fetal life. But the legal precedent, without a doubt, is something that's going to be used in other places to do other things until it gets challenged in the court or until Congress does something at the national level. Gosh, what an interesting time. And a potentially, oh, we, we just don't need more division at the moment, do we? No. And that's the thing. I mean, you know, as an American who's lived outside the state, United States for a while, it's just heartbreaking again to see just all the kind of visceral anger and conflict and division uh, arise again at a time when really the country needs to find a way to do the opposite. And, um, you know, this doesn't help. But, you know, I always think of it as a fever and it's just another sign that the fever hasn't broken. That was Damien Cave, the New York Times Australian correspondent. And Annika, a point that we didn't cover, but is 
potentially another huge complicating factor here is the emergence of telehealth consults for abortion and, and the fact that so many women can now make an appointment with their GP online and then get abortion pills mailed to them. It makes it super hard to trace and very difficult to enforce. And of course, conflicting legislations where you are to, when you go online or where your doctor is. So yeah, another complicating matter there. That is it for the Monday to Friday briefing. A huge thanks to the entire team that makes this show happen. Make sure you check your feed tomorrow morning for the weekend briefing because Jamila has a very special guest. This week, we are talking to someone who is going to be familiar to all of you. My guest on the weekend briefing is our very own Antoinette Latouf. I'm awfully proud about the number of books that are coming out of the briefing team at the moment. Antoinette has just written How to Lose Friends and Influence White People. It has just hit the shelves and she and I dive into her new book. We also talk about where that book came from. We talk about Antoinette's parents' journey as refugees to Australia from Lebanon. We talk about her experiences of racism as a kid growing up in Western Sydney. We also talk about some other telling moments in Antoinette's life, moments that have stayed with her, moments that have formed the person she is today. We dive into postnatal depression and we also talk about her absolutely beautiful family. This is one not to miss because it's a chance to get to know one of the lovely voices that brings you the news every weekday morning a little bit better. Oh, yeah, and I'm actually reading Antoinette's book, How to Lose Friends and How to Influence White People, right now. It is a cracker read, so get your hands on it if you haven't got it already. That's it from us. Have an amazing weekend, and I'll catch you on Monday. Listener.